All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How How's are it you? going? Good, Great. good, good, good. White Wade's got it under control in the studio. He's got it control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how exactly they did that. And uh, and I will say that this is this is a show I've been looking forward to uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which uh, is it's always, I, I love the fact that this show covers so much ground in terms of the different types of entrepreneurs that we bring on. It, just think about certain industries. You go, okay, that makes sense. You know, you got tech and you got, you know, finance. Like, you know, then you end up with people who have made, uh, an unbelievable amount of money in like printer toner. Yeah, that was a crazy one. And and furniture and like it just it never it never ceases to amaze me where if people just sit down and give thought to um, where the opportunity is, regardless of if they have love for the industry. Like I, I can't imagine anybody waking up and going, you know what? printer toner business like you know what i mean it's and sell just, it by phone and sell it by phone like that was that was yeah <laughs> interesting but but in this case i can kind of see how our friend nick got into the this this whole world because we're talking today to to nick bogaz and uh and nick is in the pizza business and being a chicagoan yeah, man, pizza's near and dear to the heart. So I uh, actually just got back from Chicago. Nice to go down there and uh, spend some some time with the family. And uh, and when I'm there, there there's two there's two things that that I find the rest of the country has a tough time doing well. And we're gonna get into this, Nick, and maybe you can explain a little bit to us, and so we can understand more. But very few people do thin crust as good as they do in Chicago. It's just something about it. And nobody does deep dish, especially when you get the cornmeal crust and some of the other stuff that you got there, uh, like they do in Chicago. But I think Nick may beg to differ here, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll give him that opportunity. But it was just great to go home, and, and you know, anytime you go back to Chicago, you, you got to be doing pizza, right? So, uh, needless to say, it doesn't take a, a whole lot of setup here to talk about why someone who does pizza well could do really, really well in business. And so what, what Nick's doing with, uh, with, with Caliente and then also now with the, the pizza equation of teaching others how to create thriving pizza businesses, there seems to be a huge opportunity here. So Nick, let's, uh, let's give you the opportunity to jump on and, uh, and say hello. It is Nick uh, and it's Bogaz, right? Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Actually, my, um, I've got a first cousin who, um, who married a, a dentist out of New Hampshire, whose last name is Bogaz. So maybe you guys are uh, related because you're you're an East Coaster as well, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're over in uh, New Hampshire there, and uh, so yeah, Bogaz is a, is a familiar name to me, man. So th- let's um, let's do this first and foremost. Uh, we we like to clear the air right out of the gate and give folks an understanding of how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures. So are you are you currently generating more than ten million? In revenue, did you exit from a company uh, for more than ten million, or or both? We're currently generating more than the ten million. Okay. Do you want to? We have uh, five locations in the Pittsburgh market, and we have a six one on the dockets for uh, Q one. Gotcha. All in Pittsburgh, and and so what? What is the average revenue typically per location when you guys get up and running? And you're really thriving. Anywhere from about one point six to two point four. Okay. Uh, per, per location. And then um, we started in 2012. Okay. So it's just been about seven, eight years now. Yep. Now this is a, this is a family thing for you. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I, and then my, my daughter's uh, 19. She's been working in the office for probably the last three years, doing a lot of the fouling and she does a lot of our social media and marketing. Mm-hmm. And then my son's been in the kitchen since he's been 10 and he's uh, 17. Yeah, slave labor. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Yeah, yep. no, we uh, we we totally get it about the family business stuff, man. So, uh, did, would this? But this wasn't a generational thing in terms of it being passed down to you. This was something where you just woke up one day and you said, yeah, "I gotta be doing something." Like, take us back through how Caliente got got started, and and, and just it's a lot of people say to themselves, "I want to do this," or maybe I should do this, but very few people actually do. So. 
take us back through, you know, the, where did that idea come from? And then how did you actually launch? Sure. 1996, I was uh, 17, started delivering pizzas. And then I started working my way, wrecked a few cars, worked my way up through the industry, uh, became a, a shift manager, then a kitchen manager. And then um, I started a family young. My wife and I got married at 21 and 20. Uh, started and had our daughter right away. So it was like I needed to be a manager. So I became a general manager. I was with the first store for um, five years that I started with. They had 47 stores when I started. What was, the, uh, what was the chain that you're talking about? Pizza Outlet. Pizza, okay. Uh-huh. And they were, they were very big in uh, Pittsburgh. And then they eventually sold out and became uh, Bocelli's. And they still have about a, um, over 100 locations. Mm-hmm. But when I started with them, they had 47. They got to about 130 in those five years. I wasn't big enough to get be part of that expansion because I was so young. But I w- got the idea that you could really build something from having a, um, a p- pizza restaurant. So basically what happened was through those years, then I s- wanted to become a general manager. The guy who owned Pizza Outlet was also the franchisee, so I couldn't be general manager there. So I went to the next one, which was uh, Fox's Pizza which is a small fish in a big pond type pizzeria. They have over a hundred locations mm. worked there for two years. I learned a lot of the finances while I was there. And then the next step was I went to uh, Papa John's became a general manager there. And then um, I basically learned building sales. The sales fixes everything. That was where I, I, I figured it out. What happened was, is I was young. I had a young team. Uh, we would go out to Ohio for these meetings. They had 10 stores. Uh, the franchisee did, and I would go out to these meetings with the other guys from Pittsburgh. There was four stores in Pittsburgh, uh, eight in Ohio. We would go out there, and when we were out there, they would always say, hey, Art in Youngstown's up 10%, clap for Art. Next meeting, they'd say, um, Joe in Ashtabula is up 15%, clap for him. A few months in, um, they said, Nick, the super- we're driving out to Ohio. They said the supervisor's thinking about firing you because your oven's dirty, and your walls are dirty, and I'm this 22-year-old kid with two kids at home and just working 80, 90 hours a week, and I that's when I realized sales fixes everything. I read uh, Guerrilla Marketing, sure, and, and um, I can't say anything in particular from the book stuck, but it was just the mentality, and then the next meeting we went out, hey, Nick's up 10%, clap for Nick. Next meeting, Nick's up 20%, clap for Nick. Next meeting, Nick's up 45%. Nick, tell everybody what you're doing. Yeah. And we were, I got school lunches from different, in front of the school boards. I got um, football, uh, took over to football arenas, selling pizzas there, basketball arenas, selling them at the swimming pools. And I just uh, blew it up. So then what happened was a guy came in. Now that's all with, and just, just so we're clear on that, that's all, that's all with Papa John's running, running one franchisee's. Full, could you say there was about 10, one franchise, franchise yeah. had about 10 stores. So you were the GM for those, those 10 Papa John's at this point. I ran one, one store, one store. and it was a store that was doing $6,000 a week. And in about nine months, I took it, doubled it, took it to 12,000 a week. By doing a lot of this guerrilla marketing stuff, just yeah. going out to the PTAs, going to the football games, going to yep. all these places. Okay. But again, under Papa John's. Yep. Yeah. And then what happened was uh, a guy came in. And gave me a card and said, uh, hey, we're Domino's up the street. Why don't you come work for us? And I said, you know what? Uh, look at all these awards on the wall, record weeks and everything. But that card burned a hole in my pocket. And um, I spent the next four to five years with Domino's. Mm-hmm. And I did the same thing. Uh, they actually moved me out to uh, Wilkes-Barre, which is about five hours from here on the other side of the state. Might as well be a whole nother state because sure. it's completely different. And um did the same thing. Took a store that was doing sixteen thousand to twenty five thousand. Um, just really raised the sales, build the team, the culture, the leadership. And then um, after about a year there, we we moved back home. Got really homesick. And then what happened was is I kept hearing from family and friends I needed to get a real job. So that's what I did. I went and got a job uh, selling radio advertising. Oh man! I so you got so you got completely out of the game of pizza at that point. Sure. This is about 2005. So, you know, 28 years old, two kids at home, um, really feeling a lot of pressure, need that real job. You know, what are you doing in a pizza restaurant? Yeah. So I went ahead and um, that's what I did. I, I went and, um, you know, the thing I like to say too is, you know, I always say we got homesick, but really what happened was being in the restaurant business for those 10 years, I really uh, had a really bad drug and alcohol addiction at that point. And um, 
today I can say I'm 14 years clean and sober, mm. but it really was, um, it was horrible. That was, you know, one of the reasons we left Wilkes-Barre and came back. Um, I got right, fixed all, fixed that, then made sure uh, my marriage was still intact. Mm. And then that's when I was hearing a lot of pressure if I got to get a real job. So, but at the same token, I mean, let's, let's be honest, if you're working for Domino's, your GM or whatever the, the role is at that point, I mean, that is a real job. I mean, you're, you're probably making, sure. you're probably making what 50, 60, 70 grand right. a year. I mean, it's not right. I mean, it's not right. That's, that's a pretty dang. It, yes. It's selling pizzas, but so what? Right. I mean, it, that's as real as you're going to get, you're going to go and you're going to sell ads for radio. I mean, that's, that's a much harder gig than taking something where you've done. I mean, you've been doing this for a dozen years now at this point, 14 yep. years, whatever it is at that point, you know, you started when you were a kid. So right. now you're in this, you've got all this experience and, and they're telling you to get out and go do, you know, radio ads or whatever. Right. I, I don't know. I don't, it, it almost seems like bad advice in hindsight. No. Well, it, it was. And I think that's a lot of the point of my story. You know, when you're in the restaurant business, you hear that all the time, but get a real job, you know, or in, in like, a lot of things like even you said with the printer toner, like it doesn't really matter what you're doing, you know, and that's what my grandfather always told me. He's like, it doesn't matter if you're shoveling manure, just be the best manure shoveler there is. And I got that job doing radio last about six months, got back into the pizza business. Um, about three years after that, I was, I was delivering pizzas at this point and I was working for um, three different del delivery shops. So I've got three jobs. I'm working 80 hours a week, delivering pizzas, uh, showed every single penny, Bought our first house, $160,000 house, delivering pizzas. Mm. Um, and then I kept hearing the same thing. I needed to get a real job. So I went and took the mailman test, and I became a mailman for the next four years. While I was a mailman, I delivered at three different pizza shops. And when I was at the post office, the guy said to me, hey, I've got a gig counting money at the Civic Arena at night during the Penguin Games. Would you want to come count money? So I did five jobs for the next two years, throwing <laughs> everything I could under the bed so that I could open up my own pizzeria because I realized the post office is where dreams go to die. Mm. So there was no way I wanted to end up there. You know, you work there for 20, 30 years, you cash out, get your pension at the end. And that was not me. Yeah. So, so eventually much, I became a, and how, yeah. much, how much were you able to put away then? I mean, you got all these jobs and you're just stockpiling and, and no one in your heart you wanted to, and, and, you know, frankly, that wasn't a given either in terms of being a sure thing. I mean, yeah, you want to open up your own pizza spot, but you could probably, and obviously given your experience now and what you do and you help people and so on, I mean, you could share some of what the numbers are, but I would venture to guess that uh, more pizza shops open and close than stay open. So, you know, you were, you were willing to take that pretty big, big gamble there, but how much were you willing to put away? And then uh, historically, how many as uh, a percentage, how many shops open and, and, and close? Sure. So they say like one out of five restaurants close. Yeah. You know, or, or one out of five make it. Yeah. yeah. One out of five make it. Okay. That's better. Yeah. 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 So 20% so, of the restaurants actually would make it. Yeah. That makes more sense. Right. So my whole thought was I'm going to save all this money, you know, working these five jobs. But the reality was, you know, with two kids that you find out real quick that $75,000, $80,000 is not a lot of money to have a house and raise a family of two. So I actually wasn't able to save as much money as you would think, just enough that I thought that I could you know, not have bills for one month and then have like one month's worth of capital. So it was very, very uh, little that I saved. Mm -hmm. What happened was, is I had a, um, a guy that I worked with for seven years at the pizza shop. He said to me, Hey, um, I see that you're the right guy. I want to open up a pizza shop with you. He's 10 years younger than me. He said, I'm going to max out my credit cards. We'll be 50, 50 partners. So I went started, this is 2012. I started walking into pizza shops in Oakland because uh, which is like University of Pitt, Carnegie Mellon area. I knew that would be the busiest spot for a pizza shop. And I kept saying, hey, sell me your pizza shop. And they would say, get the hell out of here. The mm. fifth guy said, my buddy has a shop for sale over across the bridge in Bloomfield. So I walked in and I said, oh no, it's a bar. You know, and I walked in the back, full pizza kitchen, everything we needed. And then we sat down, all the numbers lined up. And then I like to say for the next six months, I kept saying, all I wanted was a pizza shop. But really we had a bar and a pizza shop. Now the partner... My wife said to me, are you going to be okay buying a bar? You know, at that point I was seven years, uh, no alcohol. And I said, yeah, it's a means to the ends. I'm, I'm fine. Now my partner, I said to him, are you going to be okay? Cause he had addiction problem as well. And he said, uh, I think I'll be okay. Mm. We know how that ended mm -hmm. from, um, September till Thanksgiving, the alcohol took control of him, And I had to go to him on the 
Monday after Thanksgiving and say, hey, this isn't going to work. you got to go. Now, he thought, him being the money guy, that there was no way that I could buy the business. He said, that's fine. I don't want it anymore. I'm done. The guys that I was buying an office saw how hard I was working there, 100 hours a week plus. And they said to me, I told them what was going on. They said, look, um, save everything you can for the next nine months and we'll sell it to you. And then over the next five years, you can pay us the rest. So we did it all off of a handshake. In those next nine months, I came up with 80,000. Wow. And then for the next five years, I gave them 100,000 over, over five years with 6% interest. Wow. Then from that formula happening, five out of the next six shops, I bought with 100,000 or less in my pocket. I put down 50 at one store, um, 85 at one, 100 at the rest, and I have them hold the note for the next five years with 6% interest. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a it's a pretty gutsy structure, right? So, so five and and you have five locations now, and you said you're opening a six. So in all, in all situations, it sounds like you're going into existing pizza shops, asking the owner. And d- does that include the real estate, or do most of these guys have leases, or how are, how are you how are you structuring that? So. One of them was actual the building too, mm-hmm. and uh, we were able to we were able to do the whole thing. Um, owner financed the building and everything. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you just got to not. Lie. I mean, I I would think in this case it's just that game, and and you hear about this all the time in real estate. You know, the people who coach and teach, right? It's just like, yeah, you'd be surprised. You know, some people will just be more than happy to give you a a note on on, on the house and sell it to you with no money down and this that and the other, and you. And you think it's just a big crock, but you're you're actually saying not only did this happen once that include the real estate, but now four or five other times where it didn't include the real estate. But at the same token, you took over those shops with a small down payment and they'll carry you until you're till you're paid in full. And then it'll be 100 percent yours. Interesting. Right. And the other thing that's kind of interesting in Pennsylvania is the, there's a liquor license attached to these and the liquor license is a commodity. It has a value of. Um, the first one when I bought it, it was fifty thousand, and yeah. they're up to uh, they're up to a hundred thousand now. Wow! So, so just yeah, so that in of itself is is an asset that you can leverage. Right. So typically, and just just so I'm clear here, what when you when you how do you figure out the value? Like what what are the metrics that you use to figure out what you can pay? Because you know it sounds to me like eighty thousand dollars down plus a hundred thousand dollars a year for the next five years, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money to buy a pizza joint for. I mean, like, even if they're doing, you know, 500 K a year or whatever it is, I mean, the margins, what's the, what, what are the margins on an average pizza joint like that? Sure. So I'll back up just a little bit there. So I bought the most expensive one I've, I've paid for is 300,000 total. Most of them have been um, anywhere between 135 and I guess 300, but mm-hmm. I bought a couple of them at three, uh, 285, um, 225. So we're talking about them holding, you know, 135 to 140,000 um, over the next five years. And you've got so no monthly payments anywhere from 25 to 3,500 bucks, and not and, including your rent. And so, and just so we're all clear here, now, are you signing personally on on those notes, or are you just letting the assets? of the business like is it recourse is it non-recourse how, how are you structuring those right. those notes so they are personal like they're, they're guaranteed oh they are um, they are because what happens is when they 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 take they're pretty much you're all in is what it comes down to yeah you're all in you're in on the real estate or i mean you're in on all the property you're in on the the liquor license you're in that you know you're not going to go wrong on it mm-hmm. um and they have all been structured like that. I have been lucky enough that on the leases, I'm able to get away from the personal guarantees just because um, we have a track record now. Mm-hmm. But as far as buying the, the stores, we're all in. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, it, it's been kind of interesting buying them that way. And I think the other thing is, is I'm not just buying pizza shops. I'm buying restaurants. Like these places were steakhouses before I took over. They were uh, sports bars. You know, usually I'll have to buy a pizza oven and a dough mixer, and then we rearrange everything. Another interesting part that we've done is we have them stay open, 
till all the way to the liquor license clears. So we sign a deal, probably takes about 90 more days for the liquor license to go through. And then what happens is they close on a Sunday. We take over Monday and from Monday till Thursday night, we flip it like bar rescue, but real life. Oh, wow. And then, and then Friday we open. Wow. Yeah. And you My go wife in. hates me for that because she's like <laughs> the foreman. She's the one that gets all the uh, plumbers and electricians, the sign guys, everybody working on top of each other. And we rearrange, I mean, everything. We do it all in, you know, 96 hours, basically. Wow. We flip the whole thing. So Paint what, it, wood on the walls, everything. And what, what do you typically invest in that sort of cleanup in a, in a, in a, in a typical scenario? And then what, what's the average square footage of a place that you're looking to acquire? So I think that's interesting. You know, I like to say I'm not not a real big square footage guy. Yeah. You ask kind of like what I'm looking for. I just kind of can feel it. Mm. And you're right, like not not every you can't find those deals all the time. It takes us about um, ten to fifteen shops that we look at till we find the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the average. You know, we'll, I look at them. Any anybody who calls me or if I see, I bought one off of Craigslist, like I literally just search wherever I can. I'll go in and look at it. Um, I would say we have about 150 to 200 seats in each one, oh, wow. anywhere from 3,000 to 5,500 square feet. Um, we have full place. taps, 20, 24 taps, 150 different bottles of beer, all the different craft beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, I, I figured out that the craft beer was such a big niche that that's what I started really marketing in the beginning. Yeah. And then eventually, I went to these uh, international pizza expos out in Las Vegas, and we won the 2016, won the best pan pizza in the world with the duck pizza. Mm. In 2017, one of my guys won the world's largest pizza stretch. 2018, my guy won the um, best non-traditional pizza. And then in um, 2019, I got named along with my chef to the World Pizza Championship team. We com- competed in Italy, and he won the uh, best pizza and a best American pizza in Italy back uh, 2019 in, in March. Mm-hmm. So we then now we can really focus on marketing the pizza. But in the beginning... It was pushing all that beer is really what it was. Yeah. yeah and it's interesting, too, because I, I would think that the margins on, on the beer uh, are probably pretty comparable to the margins on, on the pizza, no? Well, it, it is. You know, you had asked, like, I always look at about 10%. Mm-hmm. When, when it's all said and done, um, 10% is about the take home. Mm-hmm. And if it's over, you know, I can always get it to, like, you know, if it's 14% or 12%, I take that extra two or four and we do something uh, bigger with it in the business mm-hmm. you know that 10 percent for me i'm happy taking that home and everything else i put back into the business because that was a big thing too you know for a guy starting out their own business it's like wait a second i have all this money coming in like how do one how do i keep it and two what do i do with it you know and, and what do you not feel guilty spending on yourself and what do you put back into your business so mm-hmm. i kind of thought you know what uh 10 percent's a good number for me if I take 10% home and then I can put everything back into the business. And if it's, you know, a year where we did 14%, I make sure we put that extra 4% uh, back in somewhere into the business, whether it's new coolers or, you know, new ovens or whatever it is to make the, uh, the whole operation more efficient. Yeah. And, and Pittsburgh's actually got a pretty good scene going on right down with the, um, what is that? The warehouse or the market or what's that area called with uh, the strip district. Yeah. The strip. Yeah. We were just there not too long ago. There's a really nice church that they turned into a uh, restaurant that seems to have some good bar. Like there's just a really interesting scene going on in uh, Pittsburgh right now. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it seems like really, really good timing for you. So it's, it's interesting though, because at some point you, you start opening these multiple locations. How do you, how, how do you personally recommend that people manage growth in the way that, that you've been so successful at because obviously with multiple locations like that, you can't be the operator. I mean, like you're not the owner operator now of five going on six locations. So how, how have you managed the growth and find, you know, finding the right people and, and compensating them? And cause it's, that's, I think what a lot of people are afraid of is they got one location and that's fine. They can be there. They can oversee it. They can, you know, they can run it, but that's not scalable. Right. So I think I've done a couple different things. Like one is I never stop learning. You know, if I don't know something, I read about it or I listen to programs or listen to podcasts or, or whatever it is, get on YouTube. And I just, you know, drop myself into that situation. 
Um, scaling was definitely one that I started reading as many things as I could. And what I came across was I had to do three things and that's it. Everything else in my business, I had to delegate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those three things have switched for me over the last, you know, every year they're a little different. Maybe even every six months, I got to reevaluate them. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, currently, leadership is number one. I put a lot of time and focus into our meetings. We have uh, over 200 employees. I have 35 managers, wow. uh, four regional positions. So, and I put those guys every Monday, we're on a phone call eight o'clock at night, going over all the numbers from the week before. Um, first Tuesday of every month, I have all 35 managers in a room. Third Tuesday of the month, all the upper management in a room. So I put a lot of time in the leadership. I always take, if the phone rings from one of those guys on the management team, I always pick it up, talk them through whatever issue they may have. And um, that's leadership, number one. Number two is expansion. You know, there's a lot of different things that go into expansion, but I'm always looking to expand. So it's, whether it's looking at new restaurants, working with the banks, working with uh, the brokers, all those different things, I put a lot of time into the actual expansion. And then the third thing that I, I find myself working a lot on right now would be the profitability. Mm. You know, as you grow, you have to kind of step back and look and say, okay, we might've been making a lot of money in this certain spot two years ago, but what switch? Is there a better system? It's almost like at home where you have the cable company for a year, you know, and you're paying whatever, 59 bucks a month. And then thir the 13th month, you're paying 140 bucks a month. Same yeah. thing in your business. You got to step back and look at every little thing that you're paying. So I've put a lot of time in the last six months in the profitability of the company as well. So those are the three things I do. I delegate everything else. I have um, really focused on my regional guy, talking to him and having him pick his three things and then kind of talking to the other guys. We have so many different managers that we have responsibility lists. They know exactly what they're doing. They kind of delegate different things onto their team. We try to be really efficient in what we do. But I think the the thing when you're scaling up is you have to have the right people. And everybody always talks about today in the labor force that you can't hire anybody. I mean, that's a big, big talk. Doesn't matter what industry you're in. Mm -hmm. So what we decided to do was we said, well, how can we keep our people better? How can we retain them? And that's really what we focus on. We put a lot of our time and energy into uh, whether it's a big holiday party or a summer picnic, or if you're there for over a year, we've got shirts to say your years of service right on your sleeve, employee of the month programs. Um, every month we're giving away different gift cards for upsell contests and different things like that. Um, we just had our, at the holiday party, we had big giant trophies made up and we did nine different awards, everything mm -hmm. from like driver of the year to hostess of the year. And just trying to make people feel like this is the right place to work and that we really appreciate them because without our people, we're nothing. And I learned a long time ago that, you know, you got to care about your people before they care about you. Yeah, for sure, man. So, so let, let's talk about, the, um, for, for lack of a better term here, the differentiator, like the key differentiator, because, you know, I mean, the pizza world is a little, like you said, I mean, you were at the Papa John's, you were at the Domino's, you, I mean, you've been at a number of places over the years. What, how, how do you differentiate what you're, I mean, there, and there are pizza spots that sell beer. So great. You got, you know, you got your crafts and all that, which is awesome. And Pittsburgh's got a great craft scene. And so there's a lot of different beers you can, you can carry, but what what makes Caliente different? Like I'm trying to figure out, like as you sure. looked at this, where did you where did you feel like the opportunity was in the market? And maybe this will open up the some ideas for others, right? Our, our listeners here in terms of because a lot of people feel like you know that's been done, you know, like it's it's we don't need another one of those. You've got all of these, so so there's no opportunity there. And when you look at pizza, one could argue we don't need another pizza joint. You know, we got all this, that we got the high end, the low end, like everything in between. So, so when you looked at it, where, where did you see the opportunity and how do you think others should think about looking at their market in terms of opportunity and differentiators? Sure. So I think the way you have to look at your business, the way I looked at it at the very beginning, you know, I, I quit the post office job and I also was general manager of that Papa John's at the time. So I quit that for, you know, I was making 75 grand a year between those two full-time jobs. And two kids, never saved a single penny for college. And I said, you know what? I will not fail. This is my chance. No matter what, I'm going to make it work. And that was my whole mentality. So I didn't know what was going to make me different, but I knew that anybody who opens up a pizza shop says this, we have the best pizza. I mean, everybody says that who opens a pizza shop. So I said, that won't be me. I'm not going to say that when we open a pizza shop. 
So I noticed early on that the beer, like first month in, that the beer was like this big thing. It was 2012. And if you got a special keg, people would show up to drink this special keg. So, you know, it was, we opened up in September, um, Christmas of 2012. There was a beer uh, from Trogues called Mad Elf. It was like 12% beer with cherries and honey. Everybody wanted it. Mm. I called up to the distributor, said, hey, can I get this Mad Elf? They said, no, you didn't sell enough regular Trogues for the year, so we can't give it to you. I said, okay. So then I try to get these other beers, and I really hounded my guy to get one keg of it. I got one keg of it because I bought a bunch of other stuff just to get it, and people lined up for it out the door. And I was like, wow, like um, if I can get this all the time, I can get a line out the door. So then I started to try and figure out, okay, um, I'm going to be the craft beer guy. Like, you know, so here I am. This is a guy saying I don't even drink. And I'm going to know everything I know, can about craft beer. So instead of going home and watching SportsCenter after a 16-hour day, I started reading craft, you know, craft breweries, rate beer, beer advocate online, looking at all these different beers, looking at all the tap lists in Pittsburgh and trying to figure out what's a good tap list. And then I saw this one place, they had a bunch of beer that nobody in Pittsburgh had. And they were like probably 45 minutes from us. And I'm like, well, how are they getting this beer? And I figured out that they were driving to Philadelphia and grabbing beer out there and then bringing it to Pittsburgh and selling it because mm -hmm. Philly's a huge market. So they're getting little guys in, in California are shipping their beer just to Philly. And that's like the only market they're shipping it to in the whole United States because it's a huge beer market. So I was going to just drive out there, grab beer and bring it back to Pittsburgh. And I realized that you need to have a license to do that. So I called my lawyer said, Hey, how do I get the license? He said, you can't give you a license because you already have a license for a bar. And I said, what about my wife? She's not on the, um, the liquor license. They said, sure, we can give your wife the transport license. So we give my wife, I pay a couple thousand bucks to get my wife a transport license. We would rent a car at Enterprise, a SUV, drive it over to Philadelphia, buy 10,000 bucks worth of beer, ass end driving back around to the turnpike all the way back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> I, I market it like crazy, like Friday night, we're gonna have all this stuff you can't find anywhere else. Market it, market it, market it. Before you know it, we became the number one craft beer bar in Pittsburgh. Mm. That was the first four years of our life in in, um, in business. I mean, it was like we had all these events. Rather than having Miller Lite girls on Friday nights, I would have a tapping from um, a certain brewery. You talked about the church brew works where where you went and the, they had the beer in the in the church. Well, I became good friends with that brewer. He would come in on Friday nights and talk about all the all the beer. Yeah, and he eventually. I uh, liked what I was doing so much that he joined me. He's been with me five years. He's my uh, beverage director. Oh, wow. He does all my beer buying now. And uh, we have an actual brewer. He was the brewer at Church Brew Works at the time. So we would now call up these breweries that we buy a lot of beer from. And he would go to their facility and brew a beer. And we'd brew a Caliente and say Yards Brewing or Caliente and Hoppin' Frog. We've done about 12 of them now. And we'd get a beer that's just ours. And the only place you could buy it would be Caliente or the brewery. And we'd release that beer. So we really just pushed the beer. That was our differentiator for four years. Then we won these giant contests for our pizza and everything went full circle. Mm -hmm. I finally became this, you know, I was so humble. So I'm just going to learn the beer and forget, not forget about the pizza, but not focus on the pizza. Let it speak for itself. And people will say, I thought it was going to be bar food, but it's great pizza. We won these giant awards. And then it was like we came full circle and I was able to push all these world championships. And and that was our differentiator that you could actually get pizza that's literally world championship pizza. And then this last year, I said, OK, now it's time to bring the beer marketing and the pizza marketing back in. So we have really focused on the beer events again and we focus on the, the brand of pizza again. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we serve five different styles in um, in our restaurant. So you talked a lot about like in the beginning. You know, we don't touch the Chicago deep dish because I believe that the only ones can do it right are people from Chicago. Yeah. And even your thin crust, that's a Chicago thin cracker bar tavern. Yeah. You won't find it anywhere else. So I don't touch those two styles, but we have a, a traditional style. We have a, a pan pizza. We have a grandma pizza. We do have a Brooklyn, which is like a New York style. And then we, uh, in the last six months, we rolled out uh, Detroit style. Mm-hmm. But, um, How many pizzas are you guys selling uh, on an average week or month right now, just to give people uh, an understanding of scale? Oh, geez. Um, thousands. Like, I'm trying to think of how many. It's hard to say. I mean, we probably go through 
I don't know, maybe 200 bags of flour a week. Between the, between the six, the five locations right now. Yeah. You're talking about like, you know, eight to 10 batches of dough every single day with like 120 dough balls in each batch. So yeah. Do the yeah. math. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, of pizza. <laughs> it's a lot of pizza. Yeah. Yeah, man. So what, so what is the, uh, what is the, the, the plan here? Are you, are you looking to franchise? Are you looking to continue to scale? Are you looking to exit? What, what's, what's your game plan? Sure. So I think in the beginning, I kept thinking, um, if you know, I never really got a chance to go open up a Domino's or Papa John's. That's really what I wanted to do. If I, I would call these companies up and say, look, I'm best general manager in the Pittsburgh. And they would say, okay, what's your net worth? And uh, I would say, well, net worth, what's that? I'm 28 with two kids. I want to yeah. get Domino's so I can build net worth. And um, it didn't work. So when I got Caliente, I originally thought, you know, if I get some of these general managers that want to be franchisees, um, that's the way I would go. Um, I think to duplicate what I've done, it's a little bit harder. I, if I still would go that route, if I found a couple guys who really had it with me, I think, um, you know, they, I would help them if they wanted to be a Caliente franchisee, Mm -hmm. but regardless, we want to be anywhere that you go in Western Pennsylvania within 10 minutes, we want you to be able to drive to a Caliente pizza. And, you know, I think that's really being, you know, kind of on the lower side probably 35 restaurants mm. you know so we've been doing one a year for the last um this will be the third year in a row mm-hmm. so we'd really like to pop open a second one one in q1 and one in q4 this year mm-hmm. and then you know continue to grow even faster uh going forward but you know that's kind of my thought that we we could definitely get to you know anywhere between 15 and 30 restaurants in pittsburgh comfortably um before we think about, you know, would we go to another market? That's a possibility too. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of good driving distance, you know, get to Cleveland quick you can get to Erie quick. You can get um, down to Virginia pr- fairly quick, quicker than you would think, and even Buffalo mm. pretty quick. But I think, um, you know, we're, we're happy in Pittsburgh right now for sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. So for, for those who are kind of nervous about jumping into the fray here and starting their own business, uh, no matter what it is, what, what advice would you give them now that you're, you know, you're looking back and it's been a number of years since you opened your, your first spot. It probably gives you some interesting perspective, interesting hindsight on just the whole entrepreneurial path that you've carved for yourself on, on doing this. What, what would you say to folks who are, thinking about making the leap. I mean, no matter what it is, no matter what business it is, uh, but just kind of nervous to make that jump. What would you tell them? Well, I think it's real simple. It burned the ships. And what I mean by that is when they, people would ask me in the very beginning, are you going to stay at the post office? You're going to stay at Papa John's while you open up your pizza thing. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going all in. Like you, you can't just do a little bit of it. You know, you want to be in there full time. I think you got to burn the ships. If you're, trying to uh, start a business and then work your full-time job. Like you got to really reevaluate it. And I know that's um, every situation is different, but for me, I think burn the ships and go all in. You, you got to give it everything you got. You don't want anyone else making the decisions in the beginning. You want to be the one making the decisions. You got to get, get there, be there in the morning, be there at night. And if it fails, you got to know it's your fault because you gave it every single thing that you had. Not one ounce was one stone was unturned. One ounce wasn't given. Like you got to know that you left it all there. And that's what I kept telling myself every day. And sure it was ups and downs, you know, the, the seven years haven't been perfect, but there were times where you know, I thought about quitting and then I would just give it more and work even harder. And then there's always that tipping point. You know, when you're, when you're scaling up or you're working towards a goal, like there's a point where if you work hard enough, everything tips and it becomes downhill and you're going uphill for so long. Eventually you just get to the point where you're going downhill. Mm-hmm. You just got to get there, but you, you can't, you can't not be all in. You gotta, you gotta just be there. You gotta, you gotta live it and breathe it. And you know, it's a living, breathing thing. Thing. That's the other thing. Like it really is. It's not just something that you close the door and go home. Like, I mean, yeah. I'm all, I'm always on. You know, but, but that's, that's it. That's if I wake up one day and, and I'm not all in, then I'll, that will be time for me to leave. But you know, every day I, I wake up and I'm just, uh, you know, happy and blessed to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, for sure. And as you as you look back, I mean, any any key mistakes you you've made here that uh, you feel like you really left some money on the table on, and, uh, and and obviously you can't do anything about it at this point, but maybe lessons learned that you can pass along to uh, to our listeners here. 
Well, I think the biggest thing is you got to do everything right. You know, I think a lot of times when you start, you think you can get away with something or, oh, I don't need to show this figure or that figure. But I think what you got to do is you got to have the right people. You know, um, your accountant is so important. Lawyers are so important because you may think, oh, I just need a lawyer. But really what you need is you need a specialized lawyer. If you're doing a real estate deal, you need a real estate lawyer. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with employee problems, you need an employee relations lawyer. Like those type of lawyers are very important to make sure they're specialized. Mm-hmm. I think those are probably the, you got to build your team. You know, yeah. it's not just the employees who work for you. It's it's the, it's your circle. You got to make sure that um, first off, that those people have the same intentions that you have and the same uh, beliefs and the same systems of uh, credibility. You know, you don't want somebody on your team. Like if you, you're a very credible person, you don't want that accountant that's going to do things wrong. You want to know that if it was a mistake, it was honest you know, and that, that um, it can be fixed. And you want to make sure that you everything is um, a, a really good team around you is what you want to make sure you have. Awesome. Yeah, Wade, I think you had a question as well, yeah? Yeah, just one thing I'd like uh, you to expand on because it might give some people hope as they're trying to do their own gig. Um, You're talking about, you know, that first uh, pizzeria where the partner wasn't working out and you turned towards, or the people that had you'd bought it from kind of stepped in. And so what's share with us your experience of getting people to help and the fact that maybe people are more willing to help than someone might anticipate. Well, I think, I think what you got to look at is you got to look at the fact that exactly what I said a couple minutes ago, you got to be all in, you know, you don't know when the opportunity is going to happen. A lot of times people think, boy, it'd be nice if somebody just gave me the money or if I could borrow the money from my parents or borrow it from this relative. But, you know, really, you got to be fair to them. They worked all their life for, for their savings. You know, and it's a really hard thing, no matter what your relationship is, to ask somebody for that. It's different when they see you working 100 hours a week. They see you living, breathing it. They see you there every day, giving everything you can. And then it's different. It's like, well, wait a second. I can see that this thing's going to work. You know, and I think that's what happened for the guys that were selling it to me. They saw that, hey, Nick's there every minute of every day. It doesn't matter if it's nine o'clock at night or two o'clock in the morning, he's there. And I think that's the thing. You have to be committed. And then people will see that you're the real deal. And I think that's that's part of it. You can't just try to um, fake your way through through help. You know, mm-hmm. and the biggest thing that I found too, like with that was um, mentorship is really important. You know, you hear it a lot and you think, oh, well, where would I ever find a mentor? Or how do you ask for a mentor? Or any of that. And you know, it's really important. I had um, my brother-in-law knew a guy who owned a bar and he became my mentor for the first probably, you know, five years, anything bar related. And uh, still to this day, if I have a problem, I'll go to him and, and we'll talk through different bar things, whether it's the first time I ever caught a, a bartender stealing to, you know, how to how to ring in all the all the different taxes for the beer and anything like he became a mentor. And then in the pizza side, I've, I've found a lot of different mentors at the trade shows. And then I think when you start making a lot of money, you need somebody who's made more money than you to, to be a mentor on, on tax strategies and everything else. And I think that's where um, if you're open to it and people can tell that you're genuine, I think that's where you get the help. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, sure. and just a, one more, just quick question. Yeah. You're talking about your different styles of pizza. What's a grandma's pizza? <laughs> Gra- <laughs> grandma pizza is, is exactly like what your grandma used to make. Uh, what the Italian grandmas used to make, you know, it's uh, just a sheet pan, they would have some dough left over from the noodles. They throw it down into a pan, throw a rag over it. Two or three hours later, it rises. They throw some sauce and cheese on it, and that's your grandma-style pizza. So it's a quick-rise uh, dough pizza. There you go. Rich, anything else before we let uh, – I know you were chowing over there on that deep dish oh. you got there, man. So you're done, you're, you're done chowing now? You're ready for uh, – yeah. Now, but anything else uh, for Nick before we let him jump? No. Uh, well, I guess the question would be when someone's – first starting a business, how important do you think the product versus versus the market is? Because I'm not trying to take anything away from the hard work you put in, but pizza and beer in a college market, like that's like, that sounds like a win right from the beginning. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in product versus the market. That's one. And then the second one is because of that question, it's interesting to me that your your goal is now to be um, 
anywhere, I think you said within 10 minutes of the certain area you're driving, which I think would take you out of some of those markets eventually. So uh, one question at a time though, sorry. Sure. So what I've, what I've focused on lately over the last six months is I, I started a podcast myself called The Business Equation. And I'm talking each one's about 20 to 30 minutes on little tactics and steps and questions just like the one you asked. And the product is so important. You know, yes, it was a college town, but it also was probably more 70%, um, sub, not suburban, but city. And um, it was a, a real families and stuff like that, maybe 30% college. So what I really decided to do was I went down the strip district where uh, Steve had mentioned, and that's where all the Italian vendors are. And I met with a guy and he said, look, he says, I have the, the best pepperoni, the best cheese. I'll get you the best sauces, but I'm not the cheapest. So if you're here looking for the cheapest, you might as well go to somewhere else. And I made that decision right from the very beginning. I, and I, like I said, I really didn't have much money. I said, yeah, I'm in. I, I want to sell the best product. And I knew, you know, working for Domino's and Papa John's, I didn't have recipes because a lot of their stuff comes in bags or, or frozen. But I knew what a good pizza tasted like. So I put together the best sauce I could buy, the best cheese I could buy. I had a great uh, dough recipe. And my future chef, I told him my dough recipe. He told me the order to put all the ingredients in. And um, my family would come down every day and we would just taste this pizza. And about the third time through, we had the dough right. Fourth time through, we had the cheese. By the end of the week, we had the, the sauce, the cheese, and the dough all together. So it was total product focused. Now, some of the restaurants we've already opened have been 10 minutes from another restaurant. And it took away a little bit, but not enough to where um, it mattered. It took, you know, maybe 5% to 8% away from that store. But we could better service that area. So I think over, over another year or so, it, it makes up for its for the time, if that makes sense. And I think the market is important. We have um, higher priced pizza, we have higher priced beer. So we need to be in somewhat of an affluent area. And I think that does make sense. So, you know, we, we feel like there's a lot of those areas in Pittsburgh. So we, we try to take our great product out to uh, the right markets for sure. Yeah. All right, let's do this, man. We're going to let you jump. Appreciate you spending as much time with us uh, here today as uh, you've been able to talk uh, talk to folks about where they can go to get more information uh, about what you've got going on, either Caliente Pizza or you know the Pizza Equation. I know you're doing some teaching around helping you know folks uh, create profitable pizza joints as well. So uh, I'll give you a second here and uh, just let let them know where to go. Sure, I'll be uh, out at the Pizza Expo in April at the International Pizza Expo in Las Vegas. You can find my book, The Pizza Equation, on Amazon, and you can find my podcast, The Business Equation, on all platforms that it, that the uh, podcasts are on, and I have a website, thepizzaequation.com, and our Caliente website is pizzadrafthouse.com. Awesome. All right, my friend, great having you on here. Next time I'm in Pittsburgh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely come and uh, try to track you down there and say, hey. Please do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Nick Bogaz, Caliente Pizza and Draft House. Thanks so much, man. Enjoy the rest of 2020 if I don't talk to you before then. You know, and uh, and Richie, it just goes back to to how we started the conversation here, you know, which is just so many interesting things going on in so many different markets. And yeah, reality is, okay, 10% here, 14% there. Well, let's let's run the numbers. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking a million six to 2.4, on an average location and even, you know, even on the, let's just call that in the middle, let's call it 2 million on average per location, 10% on the net that he's bringing home, 200 K, you know, there's money in pizza. By the time you're all said and done, you got five locations, you know, just coming directly to him ownership wise, netting out a million bucks, selling pizza and beer. Not a bad gig, you know? Not a bad gig. So, but I, but I, but I hear you on the question, you know, which is when, when does it become overly saturated and, and from a differentiating standpoint, which is what I was trying to get at, it's, it's hard, but you know, at the same token, I think it just goes back to the conversation around there's, and this is a pretty interesting analogy here, but there's a big enough pie, right. Mm -hmm. For everyone. And you look at a market like Pittsburgh and having been there over the years, you know, there's, there is no shortage of pizza joints, none. 
But you say, how can you add another 10 million in revenue in that market? Who are you taking away from? I don't think you're always taking away from other mm, similar locations, right? In terms of other, in this case, other pizza Pizza. joints. It's just, it's, it's almost as though if you look at the beer, right? If you look at just as an example, the, the number of, of craft beers, how has that impacted beer as a whole? So, so is Budweiser way down? No. Is, is Miller way down? No. Is Coors way down? No. So where, where are all these, like, if you've got all these craft brews mm-hmm. and they're each like ballast is a great example. They were, they were bought for a billion plus dollars. And so, you but know, then they just sold to a Chicago company for 250 million. They sold, they, they sold it. They got rid of it. They, oh, they dumped it. Yeah. Interesting. So they bought it and dumped it. But, but regardless, the point being, you know, you bring a brand like ballast in and then you, you sell it for a crazy number, no matter what that number actually is. How could there be room for another beer? And yet there always seems to be room for another beer. Well, I mean, for as much as people don't like working with perishables, there's something to be said because it's consumable. Yeah. I mean. Because I actually think we're, I think as as a society, and it's an interesting, and you can look at companies like Blue Apron and some of the others that are doing meal prep and delivery. Right, I think as a society, I, I don't. I, I would need the data to actually back this up, but my my hunch is, and I believe the data supports this. I just don't have it on hand here, but I believe that we're actually doing less cooking now than ever in terms of the number of times that the average American family cooks a full on meal versus getting pieces of it from out or getting you know meal prep or delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no doubt in my mind. I think we're an experiential economy right now too yeah. meets if you get rid of friction i.e i don't have to cook mm-hmm. right or i have to prep less yeah whatever with the meal planning stuff you're talking about um i think it's a win yeah and i mean i mean the con- the economy certainly reflects expansion and so when the economy as a whole reflects expansion that that's going to then shift it's, it's going to spread out amongst all of the all, all of the categories, right? Whether it's consumables, like you said, whether it's food, whether it's auto- automotive, what, I mean, housing, whatever it is. Now the question is what happens when we hit the retraction, which is inevi- inevitable. The, the, two, the decade of the tens, we'll just call it that, was the first decade where we haven't even had so much as a minor recession. It's, it's inevitable. It'll be interesting to see how it impacts businesses like this, but you know, the same token, you differentiate yourself uh, enough, you have enough of a unique experience, uh, the strong will survive. So hopefully with another roaring 20s. Yeah, right. Well, good uh, good to cover some interesting ground here. Haven't had a pizza guy on yet. And uh, it's good to, good to see our friend Nick doing so well in the Pittsburgh area there. And I uh, really appreciate you guys tuning in. If you didn't have a chance to leave us a review yet, please do so. We love you.